our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Fantastic podcast, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by NeurodiversityConsulting.org and Sanchia.org. Check us out online to find out about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Liza Citron, disabled autistic advocate and future special education teacher, Scott Davis, disabled writer, speaker, and entrepreneur, Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher, my husband, and autism parent. And we have a special guest joining us today, right just in time for celebrating Mother's Day. We have Robin Citron with us, and, and yes, same last name. She is Liza's mom. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the trials of motherhood and what it's like to be a mom raising people with disabilities, what it's like to be a mom with disabilities. And we're going to explore that particular odd space in life. <laughs> For me, it feels like an odd space. <laughs> so I, I want to get started with you, Robin. Introduce yourself to our listeners who haven't met you before. Hello, everybody. My name is Robin Citron. I am a grown-up, more or less. <laughs> I um, am the mother of two and the wife of one. Uh, one of each of those is on the autism spectrum and has various labels of disability associated with them. Uh, it's been an incredible journey, and I am here to talk about the joys and the challenges and everything in between with people who may or may not get all the nuances of our particular journey because everyone's different from what I understand. Yes, yes. Everyone is different. Every child is different. Every relationship is different. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you touched on something that I had, it, it should have occurred to me, but didn't, is that being in a relationship with someone on the autism spectrum, that can maybe be the, the second half of this interview or, or a whole other interview on its own. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but I want to get started on that that uh, that mothering piece that is unique to the both of us. Mm-hmm. What <laughs> like what was that like for you? I know what it was like for me, but what was it like when you realized, oh wait, this kid's a little bit different from average? It was challenging. I had actually my first exposure to autism was a friend of mine who had a son when I was close with her he was eight years old and he has Asperger's he's diagnosed from a relatively early age and I very very specifically remembered some of the terminology that she'd used to describe him and when Liza was four years old she was in preschool and the director of the preschool called us her father and I and asked us to come get her because something had happened with one of the other, one of her classmates. And the words that this woman used to describe Liza rang so familiar to me. And they hearkened back to the way this friend of mine had described her son. 
the words were all the same. And I thought, okay, um, let's look into that. And we were about to move. We were living in Austin, Texas at the time and, and preparing to move to Massachusetts. And so we waited about six months to have her evaluated. We didn't want to introduce a therapeutic relationship that we knew was going to end abruptly. So we waited. We brought her to the Ladders Clinic in Wellesley, Mass. And we got an initial diagnosis for her of, uh, of um, Asperger's, which was not a surprise after what I had heard. Um, and we might have pursued it further, except that 20 years ago, I don't know what it's like now. She's an adult and responsible for her own care. But 20 years ago, insurance wasn't really covering anything. We were talking about th uh, at least $3,000 out of pocket just mm. to really get the formal full diagnosis. And after that, who knows what. We made the conscious choice not to put her in group. We've lost her. Very, very firmly in the nurture versus nature. Hold camp. on, you, we and lost I, you for a minute. Very firmly not to put her in groups was the last thing we, the, we yeah. were, you've got the middle I, I, of groups. Yeah, we, Alex and I, her father and I were very, very firmly committed at the time to not putting her in um, socialization groups and various different autism growth groups because I was firmly planted in the nurture camp. I really had very little to do with, with uh, nature and ABA and all that sort of thing. Um, I was very, very much, it's all nurture all the time. And I didn't want her exposed to the behaviors. I didn't want her learning the stereotypical behaviors of people on the spectrum. And so we kept her away. We homeschooled her um, for a long time because socialization issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as it happened, she became quirky anyway. And um, I've since revised my feelings. I think that there are probably equal parts nature and nurture in all of us now. But as a pubescent, as an, and as an adolescent, as she started developing relationships with some of her peers and the challenges that came along with that, um, the ways that she processed different things that were just very, very different than anything I had personally experienced. Knowing that I was her parent and how to advocate for her, even when I really didn't get most of what was going on. For all of the reading and all of the, this is how it's supposed to present and this is what autistic person's experience and this is how their brains work and this is how they think and this is this and that's that. Um, I really didn't get it. And I tried and I tried and I tried. Um, and then of course her father's has the same diagnosis, which we didn't know until quite a bit later. And mm -hmm. they, as different as they are, are very, very similar. And um, the clash is earth shattering. It, 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 it's, it, I don't have words. I'm a word person. I don't have words. It was mm -hmm. very, very disturbing. Um, and the lack of peace in the house, I always kind of blamed on the autism. Um, in addition to that, 
she has a younger brother who is not on the spectrum and um, Liza, because of who she is, I can't pin it on the autism, but because of who she is, was such a squeaky wheel that her brother really got marginalized. And that became a really difficult thing. I read a book mm, when Liza was in eighth grade or something. I read a book. It was fiction by um, Laura, Lori or Laura Lisa Picot or something. It was about this family and from all the different perspectives. One of the kids was autistic and the other one wasn't. And it came from, from all the different voices of all the characters. And it really gave me some insight into the way the family unit was interacting. It really rang true. And my heart went out to my son in a different way, but always for my daughter too. And I think that we let Liza get away with a lot of stuff because it was easier than having to do in quotes because by discipline, I don't mean punishing discipline. I mean, yeah, um, I, Liza got away with a lot of stuff because um, because it was easier than, and I put the discipline in quotes because it, it's not like punishing discipline, but teaching the discipline of having a functional life, um, which isn't to say that the autistic life without the understanding guidance isn't functional. That's not it at all. I think that I failed miserably and Liza is incredibly functional. She's a brilliant young woman with her own voice and thankfully it's not my voice because my voice can't speak her experience. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it is really a challenge. I can't imagine what it's like from the perspective of somebody who kind of sort of gets it like you, Sam, you've got your boys and they, you have similar, but different expressions yeah. of your neurodivergence. So it's, like, I don't know if that makes it easier or harder. I know that for Alex, for my husband, I think it made it harder. And I think it's harder for Liza too, because we have conversations where we talk about how her father as a parent and she as a child should have a certain kind of, there's supposed to be a kind of a respect there for the office of parent and that respect is not necessarily earned because his behavior isn't necessarily like altogether, like it hasn't been inappropriate, inappropriate, but it's not altogether appropriate. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you explain you earn respect? And that's a, a truth that you need to, you need to earn respect from people as you go out into the world, you need to give respect just based on who a person is also, but, we have this conversation regularly and I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> um, my disabilities are very, very different. I um, had lots and lots of chemo and lots of lots of anesthesia and my brain doesn't function like it used to. And mm -hmm. I lose soft right in the middle. So this may or may not be a good thing for us to be doing. And even while I was growing up, you were dealing with fibromyalgia yeah. Yeah. And, and other things which were pretty intense. 
And I also I haven't had chemo and I haven't had lots of anesthesia and I still get lost mid-sentence and that's in part the, that's in part an autism thing I'm sure but mm. uh, among other things but mom I have to ask and I'm, I think I'm correct in assuming that you as I was growing up did not really know any autistic adults at least that were already known to be so you knew Sam uh, for anyone who doesn't know my family and Sam's family have been friends for well my mother and Sam etc have been friends for a bit but other than dad and Sam who neither of whom were diagnosed at the time I don't think you really socialized with any autistic adults did you outside of Dr. Shore I don't think so yeah And I think that comes into play when you were talking about not knowing what to do to advocate for me, because if you had socialized with people that were similar to the person that I would grow into similar, not the same, of course, I think that there would have been greater knowledge there of what what it was like. Well, I didn't have any any autistic adults to socialize with either. Aside from some family members that, you know, I gave the side eye after after reading the DSM, I'm like, you know mm-hmm. what, this really sounds like cousin so-and-so or uncle so-and-so, mm-hmm. but like no one that was officially diagnosed. And mm-hmm. yes, it can be helpful to have access to autistic adults to help parents figure out what the heck we're doing with our kids, but sometimes we don't have that option. I certainly didn't have that option. I didn't meet, you know, even though I was an autistic adult, I didn't know that till like what, two, three years ago. Couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And I didn't meet any autistic adults in person for a long time. I did find some online and it's like, wow, these folks are really salty. But you know what? They have a reason to be salty. Yeah. Well, they're not, not very they nice. didn't know him. <laughs> I'm certainly not saying that you did, that you had an opportunity to. I'm just saying if you had, that might have changed things, either of you. Well, the other really difficult thing about it is not just that. It's coming from a place where I come from a very, very different place. There are a couple of things. One is that because I don't live that journey, um, when there was a disagreement between or an issue between Liza and a neurotypical classmate. My job was to advocate for my daughter, but I far better understood what was going on with the classmate than I did with her. Mm. And I really, really had to fight to have clarity and fairness on both sides because the way Liza perceived some things I don't, I still, to this day, don't think we're accurate. And the way that the classmate behaved may also not have been okay, but it, but I, under no circumstances could I side with the classmate, but privately, I really had to address the inaccuracies with Liza in a way that challenged her appropriately and didn't accuse her and didn't make her feel worse or mm. less than or feed into the thing that fed the mindset. Mm. And that was really hard. Yeah, it's it's always a challenge to to balance 
correcting our children, teaching them without tearing them down. Because yeah. I, I'm willing to bet that for both of us, be, you know, even though we have very different backgrounds, we came mm-hmm. from a background where the, the, the teaching and the disciplining wasn't very gentle. Um, I didn't have any discipline at all. My mother was a single mom. I mean, they, my parents divorced early. My mother tried to take a belt to me once it came back and hit her in the face or something. And she never mm. lifted a hand to me again. So I never had discipline, but I was also a disgustingly good kid until I was a teenager. And then I went off the rails for a while. But um, yeah, that's, as that's usually how that happens. Do. Yeah. Um, but if it, if it matters to this situation, I think it's important to state that you had a younger brother. I do. I have, have a, brother. a younger brother. Yeah, I have a brother three years my junior. And it was really a lot of just the two of us growing up. My mom mm-hmm. was not very much a presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's gotten, my mother and I have a marvelous, excuse me, a marvelous relationship now, but it took a lot of work. And it took a lot of forgiving and it just took a lot of grace because, yeah, but, um, yeah, I, I do have a question for you. Um, as you were, as you were speaking about your relationship with Liza, as she grew along the way, and you mentioned that you were very much into the nurture, believing that <laughs> nurture had, you know, had a great yes. impact on how a child turned out. Which then reminded me about the pressures that society places on mothers to get it right all the time and to make <laughs> do, and to do all the things to make sure that our kids turn out, you know, the mm-hmm. right way. So that's definitely not going to work when you're raising someone who <clears throat> has a disability, who yeah. is already set apart, is, is already different. There's no making them like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So, I, as I dealt with those pressures from people around me to make my kids fit in, I was, okay, I, I was the kid who never really fit in myself. So I was like, you know what, I'm not going to try to make my kids fit in. They are who they are. And I'm going to teach them to be accepting of themselves, mm-hmm. just in case no one else around them gets it, at least they can get themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my approach really was the rest of the world can go pound sand. <laughs> I need I to make the decisions expression. that are right for my mm-hmm. kiddo. So how did you deal with that, with the expectations of people around you about how you should parent both of your kiddos mm-hmm. and what they were supposed to be doing and how they were supposed to be acting? How did you handle that? We haven't, well, my we mother... haven't much talked about, we haven't much talked about my brother and yeah. You know, maybe that's something for another show. Neurotypical siblings of yeah. but um my one of those, t- right, Scott? I have a brother and obviously I I would say it would be an interesting I have some thoughts and that is I like the, the idea that there's a power of advocacy and when you're talking about Robin about the uh, chemicals forever from anesthesia and stuff. I have mm-hmm. uh, a friend, Marianne Smith, that had a flood of some 
chemical that allowed her to be creative, but still oh. she has a disability. Mm-hmm. And but basically, there's the there's the idea of this, but you just have to uh, also the idea of the voice. You were talking about whether or not mm-hmm. someone's going to turn out according to yourself. It's really this balance. We, we were talking about this balance and this, mm-hmm. this power. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be good to kind of talk about the sibling dynamics and then at another of uh, raising them because my mom could share some insights on that with my younger brother, older brother. So it's because it's a different when you have two different dynamics, mm-hmm. one regular kid and then this special needs kid like myself who comes in needing intents of help. It's this imbalance. Well, Liza, okay. Your question, Sam, my mm-hmm. mother to this day tells me how Liza doesn't fit in and how Liza <laughs> needs to this and Liza needs to that so that she can, how she worries about Liza when Liza gets older because Liza will not be able to do this and Liza will not be able to do that. So my whole, my whole adult life, Liza's entire life, I've been getting that from my mom. Has she um, heard this show? <laughs> And she won't. She probably won't. She's not computer savvy. She doesn't podcast. Yeah, I was considering. I was considering whether we should. We were just down at her house, and I was considering whether we should. You know, she knows about it, but Mm -hmm. but in answer to the question, the how, I don't know if this is a kosher statement. I don't know for this group, but the how for me goes back to proverbs. And the raise up a child according to his way. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. Mm -hmm. Um, That scripture verse in the Hebrew really has more to do with understanding the child than with God. Mm. And it's really more about understanding your child's giftings and raising them to best express and use those giftings to be who they are successfully and not about your child straying from the path of of faith and all that which is the way it's often applied but that's really not the implication in the hebrew at all um but that verse really um spoke to me and again i don't know that i've done it terribly successfully but that verse really did govern it did govern the way that i looked at liza and the raising of her at the same time. Hold on. Uh-huh. I forgot to turn on my do not disturb. Okay. <laughs> Start again. At the same time, at the same time, I, again, she and I have had this discussion. There's nothing we're going to talk about that Liza and I haven't discussed in detail. We have a very good relationship that way. And we try to hear each other. I, um, we've had nothing else to do when I was taking care of you, but to have, these discussions so there's that there's that but there's there was one of the major discussions that we've had over the years is um curing autism curing Mm. deafness curing any given disability and does it need to be cured and i understand a disabled person's identity in their disability and embracing who they are in that i get that but as a parent my desire would have always been that 
my child would not have to grapple with that. It makes it so much more difficult. And so we've had these conversations over and over again about if, if you, if there were a cure, would you want it? If I could, oh, you're frozen again. Oh, no. you. If and I could. she said over and over, particularly in recent years, if I, if, if I could find a cure, if I could make it easier for you, would you want this? And in recent years in particular, she said over and over again, no, she doesn't. Her identity is in who she is today, in, in her person as an autistic individual, in her identity, in the masking, in all of that stuff. That's who she is. She doesn't just doesn't necessarily want it to be easier because this is where she finds herself. And, and that's- I, I know for myself that all of the struggles that I went through throughout my life, they've made me who I am. Mm-hmm. I like who I am. I would never have known <laughs> how right. strong I could be if I had not been tested by, by the challenges of five years of college, not knowing why I was struggling so much mm-hmm. and why mm-hmm. my fall grades were always a mess, but my spring grades were always okay. Mm. Yeah, it's really hilarious looking at my college transcript. I don't know that I would appreciate the strength that I have and the creativity mm-hmm. that I have if I didn't have to raise two autistic kids and three kind of sort of neurotypical kids, but still quirky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and have mm-hmm. to learn so much on my own and make up so much stuff on my own. I can't imagine the kind of person I would be if I hadn't had mm-hmm. those experiences to help me explore the depths of who I really am. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to bring you the, the rest of you guys into this into this conversation. Jeremy, you've watched me mother for the last 20-something years. <laughs> Do you have any questions for us? Well, I wanted to comment on one thing that, that Robin was just discussing, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but one of the, um, I guess, ways that I like to think about that question of, of a, a cure <laughs> or... I think we just lost your audio, Jeremy. Uh, can, I, can I step in? Yeah, go ahead, Scott. I agree with what you've been saying about it any experience with disability or any challenge can help bring out that creativity. And we, we, yeah, we did talk about the cure or the aspect of someone's blind where they want to then see it. It defines that, that challenge defines, defines us as people. And it also helps people inspire them also. So that's, that's the key because I'm coming from it as a son. I've never experienced mothering. That job would be a really tough one to do. But I admire all the moms that do do that job because I wouldn't be here without that. But I understand in terms of mentoring others as sort of like a parent figure. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work when you're advocating for people. Mm-hmm. Because when I was in my Sunday school class with my friend Gary, I had him with the young adults and that was awkward. Here you have a 15 years old individual than myself with young adults and and you try to still be friendly in that same environment and that caused problems. Not that 
many of you might have that issue, but you might. It's just another example of the environment. How do you place them in that environment? And you were talking about that, Robin mm -hmm. and, and Liza, of how do you place your, your loving child in that setting? Mm -hmm. Jeremy, are you back with us? The last words we heard were about a cure. Oh, there he right. is. Sorry, there's a, uh, there's a uh, technician in the house right now working on my computer and I'm in on my tablet. I'm trying to navigate two conversations at once. So my, um, so what I was, what I was, what I wanted to say was there's a um, part of the whole conversation about the cure depends on this notion that there's this one thing that is the disability. And with autism, that's certainly not true. There's a bunch of things going on at once, some of which are uncontroversially difficult and perhaps even bad for someone to experience, mm -hmm. I, I think. And some of them are a lot less clearly so. Some of them are things that might be identity forming and that someone will be happy to, to retain and wouldn't want to have to lose. And in some ways, it's kind of like a personality. Would You'd have to be giving up your personality. No one wants to give up their personality. You could sort of imagine having brain surgery and they would tell you afterward, well, you have a choice between becoming the sort of person who likes, and then they would list some dreadful things that you would have no interest in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> would you want to change to be that kind of person? Of course not, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's how a lot of people think a cure for something like autism would, would, would be like. They don't want anything like that. But nevertheless, they have struggles and difficulties, their cognitive processing issues, and they sometimes have a hard time understanding what other people are experiencing and so on. And they might be happy to say, okay, if I could improve in that a little bit, that would be nice. Right. So that, that the question sounds to me like it's too broad a question. If you get more precise and say, with this aspect of yourself, would you be happy to have that go away? They might say, sure. This mm -hmm. other aspect of yourself, would you want to have that go away? And they say, of course not. That's part of who I am. So mm -hmm. that, that's how I have been seeing that question lately. Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, I think it's kind of helpful to think about it that way. Yeah, and, and we did touch on this yesterday. And also, my mother has said that, you know, that we've been having this conversation often. And I am going to say this, oftentimes, as a case, she uses your second oldest as I was going to refer to him. Yeah. As to whether, like, whether he would be on the side of, of less of the personality defining things, less of the things that aren't quote-unquote explicitly negative versus some of the things that are. That's an example that she often uses. Well, thinking of it as, you know, could we, if we could pick and choose things about our personality to change, mm -hmm. would we? None of us can do that. Yeah. No. Right. No one can pick and choose about their personality, things about their personality that they can change. Other than living our lives and having different experiences from day to day to help us learn who we are. So in that sense, you know, if you're thinking about a cure coming from that sense, it really helps us to understand that curing autism isn't really a thing, but learning who you are as an autistic person, that's a thing. Right. But if there were... And we keep on using the word cure, and I realize I'm the one that used it. I just can't think of another word right now. But, for example, if a cure would mitigate child, your 
child number two wandering and the potentially dangerous things that he does because that's how he how he's expressed and manifested right mm. if a cure could mitigate that but it would detract some from his personality would the trade-off have been worth it right if you as a parent could have spared him that right if there were a cure that could have been administered early on or what have you i mean that's the kind of things that we discuss mm. and like but of course, then you wind up thinking about Hitler and and all that kind of stuff too. And wh where do you draw the line? There's. I, a, but I was going to say we get into things like genetic testing, and then that that right. in the wrong hands leads to eugenics and right. And so it's obviously it's an area of sensitivity. But as a parent. Mm -hmm. It's that constant, like, okay, I really want to spare my child. The, I mean, yes, they do shape you and they do, without your experiences, Liza, you would not be the strong woman that you are for all of the areas that you're not. You would not be for where you are. It is who you are. And that is not a bad thing. But as a parent, particularly at the start of the journey, when you're seeing all this stuff and you don't know where it's gonna wind up, mm -hmm. you want desperately to spare your child the loneliness and the, the, just these things that, okay, Alex, my husband, when Alex first started teaching piano, um, the way we know Sam and Jeremy is their eldest son was a student of my husband who specialized teaching piano to kids on the spectrum. That's how we initially met. And when my husband, his first student, his first autistic student was a kid that he taught out in um, near Boston. He would go to this, uh, the kid's caretaker, because both parents had to work um, so he could get all the therapies he needed. His caretaker would bring the, this child to, Alex every week and after about a year and a half Alex gets a letter from this oh hello Alex gets a letter from um from this kid's mom who he's never met and the mom says thank you so much for your lessons my son met with three different teachers before you none of whom met him for more than five minutes before they dismissed him mm. but what he's learned from you has been invaluable and thank you because in a few years when all of his peers are out there having music and in having dating and all the stuff that they're going to be doing as teenagers, my son will have his music. And that spoke volumes to me just about the loneliness that was waiting for my child. Hmm. And in that moment, I would have done anything to spare her that anything, anything. As moms, and I think I think we are we're really good at that that right. doomsday planning, thinking about right. the worst case, thinking about the yes. worst case scenario. And, yes. Oh my gosh, what do I do? I have to stop that. And yeah, I was I was so good at thinking about the worst case scenario for my children. Um, mm -hmm. I've I had do. to. I've had to untrain my brain mm. doing that. 
I and, do feel as though that's a situation in which knowing autistic adults would definitely help. Autistic adults who are not all that lonely doom and gloom that you dread for your child. Yes, yes. I think that's that's definitely um, a plus of knowing autistic adults because they can help talk us down. <laughs> they can help talk worried moms down off of mm. that. Oh my gosh, what is going to happen to my kid? And I think that Logically, was what was like, really helpful for this? me when I found autistic kids is that, uh, wait, no. That's what was really helpful for me when I found autistic adults because mm -hmm. these were people who were saying, hey, parents, dial it back a notch. <laughs> <laughs> and you they know. can even take it logically like, okay, you, you, you're concerned that your kid is going to turn into this because they're autistic. Well, look at me. Do you think I'm that? No. Yes. And I, I also want to mention something else that, that you brought up. Um, I'm so used to saying Liza, that you brought up <laughs> that, look, you two are so much alike. It's hilarious. <laughs> you look alike. Really? Yes. Uh, but there's something that you, you mentioned, and, and that's like the feeling the guilt that you're not mm -hmm. doing enough and not doing the right things for your kids. And when I talk to, uh, yeah, when I talk to moms who are new in this journey and whose autistic kids are little, every single one of them, they're like, I'm failing my child. I'm not doing enough for my child. In reality, they're pulling out all the stops for their child. How do I know? Because they're asking me all the right questions about what they need to be doing for their child. So let's talk a little bit about that, that mom guilt mm. <laughs> that we're not doing enough. Mm. And, and you've you mentioned that, of course, mentioned experiencing it. that as well, Robin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you learn to deal with that? I haven't. Mm. I still, I mean, not so much with Liza, because again, she's an adult. Um, I still wish I could do more. I, you know, I still, like any good Jewish mother, I come to her place and I clean and I, well, stuff and, you know, it, 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 it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter the condition of her place. Any mother will come in with a white glove and, you know, yeah. I don't, I'm a slob, but, um, but I do try to help. Um, but the guilt isn't for her anymore. The guilt is really about having marginalized her brother, mm. uh, which, you know, we're back to that. It, it's Liza required so much attention because it's so much wasn't what you prepare yourself for as a parent it wasn't you know you grow up i don't know that we necessarily romanticize parenthood oh yeah but, we do yeah. that's actually part of parenthood yeah Have, having your rom romanticized ideals about parenthood completely broken by the reality reality for it's sure. possible it's possible i never did because i don't want it <laughs> right okay but you do your own thing it's yeah it's, I, I i will parent my students is in right, some ways that willing but it it when we realized what it would take to equip liza for a productive life as she is who she is or as she is who we might have wanted her to be because you know, you have dreams, what you expect for your children. 
we realized that it wasn't going to be what, you know, you spend your whole life. I was in my mid thirties when Liza was born and I wasn't a kid and you spend your whole life thinking about what parenting is going to be like and how you're not going to be like your own parents and blah, 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 all this stuff. And when we realized how much Liza wasn't diagnosed until right after Aaron was born, she really wasn't presenting until right after my son was born. And so had we known, we may or may not have chosen to have a second child. I don't know. I'm I'm glad we did because I love both my kids desperately. But once he was born and Liza started presenting with the different behaviors and stuff, everything went into what we perceived she needed. And so Aaron got very, very little in terms of guidance and discipline until he was much older. And that's where most of my guilt lies. Because mm. um, we did do everything that we thought was best for Liza. Even if it wasn't what was right, it was what we, after having studied and prayed and considered, thought was best for her. But then that's often the case with first children and subsequent children is you get more lax as the kids, you know, there are more kids. Yeah. But my yeah. son... He really was marginalized for the first many years. And that's really the source of my guilt. Yeah. The, um, the running joke in our house is that the youngest two out of the five, they're just about feral and are <laughs> basically raising themselves. <laughs> but um, you, you met that guilt about neglecting the other children. I think, I don't know that I ever went down that road because my first two the first two kids that I have are both autistic. Right. So I didn't have a chance to, to think, oh, no, we're going to have to, like, I understood the weight of what we had to do. I knew that it would be for the rest of our natural lives that we mm -hmm. would be fighting for them and advocating for them and making sure that people were listening to their voices and I, I took the approach of I'll do that for their siblings too, because mm -hmm. I also want their siblings' voices to be heard. So I, I understand that the, that was a worry. That was one of the things that I worried about, that I would not give the other children enough attention. So, you know, this is me, my doomsday planning. I'm like, okay, I don't want mm -hmm. my kids when they grow up to be frustrated and upset that their siblings took all the attention. Mm -hmm. And so when there were times when they expressed frustration because their brothers were so different and, and, you know, we sat down and we talked about it. Yes, mm -hmm. your brother is different. His brain works a different way and he experiences the world differently. And, you know, if you experience the world the way he does, we'd be doing the same things for you, but you don't. So we don't do those things because you don't need them. And I think we've been successful. What would you say, Jeremy? We've been successful at helping the kids understand the differences between them. And I think they, they largely like get dogs, that. They largely get that when they're not, uh, when they're in their calmer, collected moments. Sure. <laughs> I think there are yeah. certain times when they feel like they sh should be treated in other ways than they do. 
And some of that is because, I mean, it's not just that there are the two older ones and then the younger three, but even among the two older ones, one of them gets far more attention mm-hmm. because he needs it. Mm-hmm. He's a safety issue. Yeah. And that gets worse if we don't do certain things that positively give him certain attention. Mm-hmm. And um, there are times when someone needs to stay home and watch him, which means that our now our number four is getting rides to track practice every day because and she's taken that on herself to do to make sure she's there on time because it's not predictable whether I can just get up and take her mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. It's it's and she's sometimes taken on the responsibility as her older sister has to watch him when both of us are unavailable and and uh and she's she's 12 and she's watching her 18 year old brother but he listens to her (laughs) yeah she's bossy so he listens to her (laughs) that's pretty much what it is yes she was born (laughs) bossy and i totally encourage it even though there are days where I'm like, oh my gosh, why did I, why did I teach them to speak? Ah. (laughs) So, but at the same time, that's an enormous amount of pressure on the two of them. Yeah. A 12 year old and a 16 year old Mm. having to spend a few hours sometimes in a day watching their brother, who was a danger at times. And there's times when they just drop the ball. I came home one day and he was wandering around outside. Mm. I was watching him like two days ago. <laughs> so yes. th- there's times when they just drop the ball and they just don't, they're not paying attention to him. He gets outside and they don't notice. They, one of them goes upstairs, thinks the other one's watching him. The other one thinks the first one's watching him and no one's watching him. Yeah. So, I mean, that's always been true. That was true with us when we were, even when we've both been in the house, there's times mm-hmm. when no one happens to be having eyes right on him. And he'd always wait until I was changing a diaper and then he'd go take a, take a walk so he, I mean, yeah, he would he's... deliberately wait until i was changing a diaper mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was it was uh it was very much he watches to see who's watching him. so um, yeah. Yeah. we've gotten into habits over the winter when he doesn't want to go outside that we can't maintain anymore now that it's getting warm again so but that's that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the two of them who are capable of watching him mm-hmm. um there and, you are know, there's again there's that mom guilt of oh my gosh i've turned my kids into co-parents mm-hmm. ah! but we've got we've also got an, an older son who has disabilities and has mm-hmm. needs and needs attention that we sometimes can't give him because his brother's concerns are immediate and and mm-hmm. instant right yeah so it's not just the three that don't have disabilities mm-hmm. there's also a disparate and sometimes necessary disparate treatment mm-hmm. of the two who do. And I think, I, I think of parents who have just one child who has, who's like our oldest one, mm-hmm. and they would certainly have been able to give more attention to, to those needs than, than we've been able to do. Um, not just because we have two, mm-hmm. but because we have three others as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we both have a lot that we're doing in, because in, with, in professionally. With uh, my mom uh, who can't be here because obviously it's uh, time-wise and, and it's tough to really do this kind of thing when you're normally not on a podcast, but maybe someday she will be on, on some podcasts, but has a lot of wisdom. But with myself and my brother, my brother's eight years older, 
And then when you when I came in in 1963, we didn't have the modern technologies. We had to do some dye studies with in the brain and then get some scans to see where the areas lit up and were not or were not lit up. We didn't have the EEGs back then, MRIs and CAT scans and all kinds of scans. And then, of course, there's this whole issue of how do you bring someone into the world and and form their identity. We're talking a lot about identity formation. And I'd say both you, Sam, and and uh, Jeremy, and Alex, and, and Robin, you've done absolutely fantastic jobs with your children. You're going to make me cry, Scott. I've never seen, Sam, your kids in person interacting, so I'm just going on face value saying you did an excellent, I've done an excellent job. Oh, no, they did. They, they did. have. From what I've heard and everything. So it's 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 a balancing act. I mean, here I am not I can't give any of the motherly advice, but having seen my mom take care of me, advocate for me, and my dad advocating for me and my brother at times, it's it's a challenge in life, but it's a worthwhile challenge. So those that are listening, whether you're a single dad or whether you're wherever in your relationship status in life and you have these children or even if you're you yourself are challenged to just keep it one step at a time yeah and scott you bring up a great point mentioning how you saw your parents and your mom especially advocating for you and caring for you our children are watching us and they are learning Mm -hmm. from us which that's a scary thought (laughs) Uh, yes (laughs) because I know that I'm not perfect. <laughs> no. But one of the things that I have seen as a mother is I've watched my children care for others, care for other vulnerable people, advocate for their friends who are sometimes marginalized. I mean, mm-hmm. I get phone calls from my I've gotten phone calls from my teacher. From, from my teenager, mom, they're not following the IEP. What do we do? Say, I was going to say your middle child is just, oh my gosh. I just, she, I'm, I would have given, I, I would have given anything to have had a friend like her when I was in school. Well, I have to say one of my proudest moments for Liza was a couple of years ago. She was in, um, in a jazz ensemble. And there was uh, another student who was hearing impaired and and, autistic and autistic and where Liza would never, ever in that venue. I had trouble getting along with the instructor. Let's put it that way. Because of disability. Right. She would not have spoken up for herself in that venue just because it may or may not have been ideal. Um, But for this other student, she was all over it. Mm. And I, I think that that was when I realized, no, it's not. When I realized, I realized a number of years ago when I saw her working with a very young autistic child of um, the niece of um, our rabbi. And this child, nonverbal, autistic, pretty pretty much nonverbal and when they were leaving I think she said goodbye to Eliza and that was tremendous 
absolutely tremendous. Her mother was like blown away. Liza has a real compassion and a real gift. And I think that that was when, when I saw what to encourage in her. Hmm. And I shared it with her pretty much right away and let her take it. And she has, she's run with it. And that really has blossomed into her vision for her life now and her work with, with neurodiversity consulting and with the, with all of the peripheral yeah. stuff. Various branches. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I just, it, which brings us back to that, encouraging your child in their giftings and, yeah. and, yeah, I was thinking at the time I wanted to go into physics, which glad I don't know, but that was what really got me into realizing I wanted to work in the disability studies field, to work in special education, you know, to work because I saw a bit of myself in this girl. And the fact that I could make so much of a difference for her that she would push past all the difficulty all the difficulty in speaking to, to try and say something to me, even if it was barely audible, to, to wish me goodbye was when I knew I wanted to do this. And now you're going to blow them all away. Yes. Blows me away on a regular basis. So I, we are uh, almost out of time and I love Robin the way that you you read that 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 passage from the from the Bible to train up a child in the way that they should go because it it is very important to know our children as mothers mm-hmm. and and have you have that that time take that time to learn who they are so that mm-hmm. we can teach them who they are and encourage them to be yes as they are and who they are and to, to not be afraid of expressing themselves. Now, when, when you discover that you have a child who's a little bit too much like you <laughs> or a little bit too different from you, that becomes challenging. <laughs> Ask me how I know. <laughs> the interesting thing is when I, was, when I was a little kid, I was very, very similar to my father. I still am in some ways. But as I've grown up, I have taken on some elements that are that I've learned from my mother and that are a bit more similar to her. And I don't think you can deny that, Ma. Oh, yeah. No, but I think that's the good stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, completely. Yes. No, uh, the bad stuff you get from your dad, the good stuff you get from me. That's pretty <laughs> <laughs> And he's going to listen to this. and That's okay. He knows it. <laughs> yes, he does. So, so wrapping up, Robin, what would your advice be to moms who are new to their child's disability? Um, love your child in the truest way possible. Um, learn patience early on. Stop romanticizing parenthood because you're only going to get disappointed and everybody loses that way everybody loses and that's not fair to anybody because the journey can really be amazing um 
don't expect every moment to be a mountaintop, but embrace them when you get to experience them because they carry you a long way. Um, be genuine with your children. Just be real because the truth is we don't really know anything. We don't. We, we don't see into the future. If I had known early on who Liza would become, I don't think my days and nights would have been as angst-ridden. I think I would have had more peace knowing what would be produced from all of the stuff. And that's not to say there aren't things I would go back and change. Um, I wouldn't go back and change. I just, I mean, I still, we want to make it easier for our kids, but easier isn't always better for them. That's a great point. Easy is not always better. And so I want to end on that note and thank you, Robin, for being here and, and sharing your, your insights and your experiences as a mother. And thank you for helping to make Liza into the awesome person that she is. Oh, that's all her. That's all her. Um, thank you for having me. Happy Mother's Day. It is not. It is not. Yes. Happy Mother's Day to yes. the mothers who are listening and yeah. to the people who function as mothers, even though they may not have that official title, you still do mm -hmm. all the work. Yes, ma'am. Kudos to you. You are listening to the podcast, Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanchia.org. Check us out on the web to find out all the great things that we do with people with disabilities. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. Thank you for joining in, and we will have another great topic for you next time.